Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we bring you Chapter 2 in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. As you may know, each episode this season was inspired by a listener request posted on our forum, which you can find at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Today we're going to hear from Liz Louie from the film blog Now Voyaging, which you can find at nowvoyaging.wordpress.com. Hi, my name is Liz. I was hoping that you might be able to do an episode about some of the stars of the silent film, people like Paula Negri, Marion Davies, Milton Stills, etc. Silent films really are such an interesting part of film history, it's one that is still surrounded by a lot of rumors and stories about past forgotten names and people. These people really helped shape the golden age of Hollywood, and I would really love to learn more about the people who were some of the first movie stars. Thanks, Liz. Our next few episodes are going to explore the lives and work of four major silent film stars. Today's episode deals with one of the actresses specifically requested by Liz. Marion Davies. In this chapter, we'll try to untangle the knotted strains of fact, fiction, and myth connecting a number of players in 1920s Hollywood, including Davies, a showgirl turned actress who appeared in both silent and sound films, William Randolph Hearst, the publishing magnate and empire builder who kept Marion as his mistress for decades and financed most of her films, MGM moguls Irving Thalberg and Louis B. Mayer, and the masterpiece film that none of these people made, but which would seriously impact the legacies of Davies and Hearst, and which Mayer led the charge in trying to suppress. 
Thanks to Orson Welles' groundbreaking 1941 film, Citizen Kane, Marion Davies is enshrined in memory as the gorgeous, but embarrassingly untalented mistress of Hearst, due to the portrayal by Dorothy Comingor of a Davies-esque singer in Welles' film. But Davies was not an exact real-life dupe for the character in Welles' film. In real life, Marion's involvement with the much older Hearst both ensured that she would have a movie career and also doomed Davies to ridicule and limited her stardom. Today, we will explain how Davies and Hearst hooked up, investigate the mutually beneficial working relationship between Hearst and Louis B. Mayer, show how that relationship soured over MGM's misuse of Davies and her competition with Irving Thalberg's wife, and finally, we'll talk about why Mayer made an effort to block the release of probably the greatest American film ever made, and why he did so on Hearst's behalf. Join us, won't you, for the story of Marion Davies, William Randolph Hearst, and Citizen Kane. William Randolph Hearst was not the only model for Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane. But it's easy to conflate the two because in hindsight, each man seemed to live to invent his own reality. A reality in which it would be possible for him to accumulate the kind of wealth and power usually reserved for despotic kings and do it within the ostensible democracy of late 19th and early 20th century America. In the late 1800s, Hearst's newspaper, The New York Journal, helped to invent what would become known as yellow journalism, a style meant to hit the reader in the heart and gut more than the head, epitomized today by British tabloids like the Daily Mail, and marked by sensationalistic headlines and a prose style that favored dramatization over hard-reported facts. Hearst's papers abandoned all objectivity during the Spanish-American War, printing stories designed to disparage the Spanish and aid the cause of the Cubans, regardless of whether or not those stories were true. Buoyed by the high public profile he had attained during the war, Hearst successfully ran for Congress and unsuccessfully ran for mayor and governor of New York. He married 21-year-old chorus girl Millicent Veronica Wilson, and between 1904 and 1915, they had five sons. While Hearst was in the midst of his Spanish-American adventure, Marion Davies was in the midst of being born in 1897 to a Brooklyn family with connections to the show world. Marion's brother-in-law was the theatrical producer George W. Letterer. Marion made her stage debut at 17 as a chorus girl, and soon moved on to the Ziegfeld Follies. Some reports suggest that it was around this time that Davies and Hearst first met. Davies said that she remembered Hearst creeping around the theater when she was in the Follies. The girls in the show told me who he was. They said, look out for him. He's looking at you. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. But Davies has also been quoted as saying that she and Hearst didn't officially meet until after she made her first film. That film, called Runaway Romany, a Pathé picture shot in Florida and directed by Davies' brother-in-law, Letterer, 
It's considered by some to have been intended as a kind of showreel for Marion, to help her attract the attention of someone like Hearst. If that's what it was, it worked. Hearst saw it, brought her in for a screen test, and in 1918 signed her to a contract with his newly formed production company, Cosmopolitan Pictures, at $5 a week. Davies had a stutter, but that didn't matter. She had big, expressive eyes, highly photogenic blonde hair, and an adorable pout. Even Davies's detractors would have to admit that she was incredibly photogenic, and she could sell a joke. Her memoirs reveal the actress to have a dry sense of humor, above all about herself. As she would crack about her career beginnings, I couldn't act, but the idea of silent pictures appealed to me, because I couldn't talk either. It seems like Davies and Hearst brought out Hollywood ambitions in one another. He had gotten into the movie business via newsreels in the mid-teens and expanded first into producing crazy cat cartoons and animated versions of the comic strips that appeared in his papers. His first live-action credit as producer was Patria, a 1917 vehicle for dancer Irene Castle, but he hadn't seriously expanded beyond filming sections of the newspaper until he met Marion. As she remembered, he said... I guess I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. And I was the basket. Hearst's stroke of genius when it came to Marion Davies was to use what he had already proven had worked when it came to selling newspapers. And more than that, manipulating reality. If he wanted something to happen, he would report that it was already happening, and then it would really happen. And so Hearst put the weight of his newspaper empire into spreading the news about this amazing new star, Marion Davies. And then he found some movies for her to actually star in. By 1920, Davies had appeared in seven films and had worked with top talents, including screenwriter Anita Luz and director Alan Dwan. But she still hadn't really proved herself as a performer. By now, it was common knowledge that Davies was Hearst's mistress. Around 1919, she moved in with W.R. at his newly constructed Santa Barbara estate, San Simeon. The Catholic Hearst hadn't divorced his wife, Millicent, and he never would. But Davies would live with Hearst openly for decades. By 1921, non-Hearst papers had begun to insinuate that Davies' movies were merely vanity productions. Reviewing Marion's reincarnation movie, Buried Treasure, the New York Times predicted viewers would wonder, why do they do this when they have so much money to spend on something good? It was true that Hearst's wallet knew no bounds when it came to Marion Davies' movies. At the same time, another thing that was undeniable about Davies was that off-screen, she was fun and funny and liked by just about everyone. And other papers were starting to take notice of Davies' beauty and vitality, particularly after the 1921 film Enchantment, in which Davies played a flapper a full two years before the Colleen Moore film Flaming Youth, which is all but universally considered to be the flapper type's on-screen debut. But the fun-loving modern that Davies played in Enchantment was an anomaly because Hearst was extremely controlling about his girlfriend's on-screen image. He was a product of the 19th century, 
And as much as he was living out a very 20th century situation with his mistress in California, while his estranged wife cashed checks in New York, Hearst was determined to keep Davies' on-screen image pure, to the point of being Victorian. In fact, some have suggested that it was exactly their non-conventional relationship that made Hearst so intent on protecting Davies' persona. Hearst knew that he and Marion could never marry, and because of that, he knew that she would always be considered by many to be a fallen woman living in sin. In insisting that she never lose her quote-unquote dignity on screen, Hearst was, in a sense, trying to restore the virtue that he felt he had robbed from her in real life. Marion wasn't resentful of what Hearst had taken away from her, and she wasn't in it just for what he could get for her. By all accounts, Davies truly loved Hearst. Though rumors have persisted for decades that she had affairs, including one with Charlie Chaplin, immortalized in the Peter Bogdanovich film The Cat's Meow, starring Kirsten Dunst as Davies, others believe that Davies and Hearst were faithful to one another over the course of their affair, making their relationship all the more remarkable within 20s and 30s Hollywood. Davies herself claimed that she didn't have a chance to cheat because every man in the world was scared of Hearst. She said, There were some men who were a bit strenuous in their pursuit of me. That happened occasionally, but the moment W.I. would arrive, they'd all run for shelter. Somebody might say something like, You're divine, and such and such. But the moment W.I. would appear, whoosh, they'd disappear. Hearst wasn't just an imposing presence, scaring away potential admirers. He also went out of his way to give Marion an inflated sense of self. He told her, Never read any bad reviews about yourself. Read only the good ones. He insisted that she was a great actress, if not the greatest actress. Every time they went to see something starring another actress, he'd tell Marion he thought she could have done better in the role. Marion knew better, but her older boyfriend's rose-tinted impression of her talent gave her confidence. Davies was extremely humble about her abilities, but make no mistake, she was truly talented. You can watch many of her films on YouTube, in whole or in part. And in addition to her beauty, she has a real understanding of how to play to the camera. She finally broke out in a 1922 film called When Knighthood Was in Flower, one of several she starred in that year which allowed her to play a double role, thus allowing Hearst to have his Victorian cake while Marion got to bite into something juicier. Knighthood became a real hit, and with it, audiences embraced Davies as a real star, independent of the Hearst Papers' manufactured reality. Knighthood was a lavish costume drama, and its success convinced Hearst all the more that this was the type of role Davies should be playing, literally a woman out of the past, her beauty set off by decadent costuming and art direction, and all but worshipped by the camera. As usual, there was no room in Hearst's vision for reality, which in this case was the fact that Davies was a gifted comedian, as she also showed in Knighthood in the portion of the film in which her Mary Tudor masquerades as a boy. But Hearst equated comedy with ugliness and vulgarity, and he was not about to allow his pretty princess 
to be associated with either. The following year, in February 1923, Hearst found a distribution partner for his production company in Goldwyn Pictures. A little over a year later, the struggling Goldwyn company was bought by Lowe's Inc. and folded into their newly formed conglomerate, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. All of Goldwyn's assets were brought into the new company, including their studio lot and their contract with Hearst which meant that Davies and her movies were now de facto property of MGM. Hearst went on to negotiate an unprecedented deal for himself and Marion, who he had named president of his Cosmopolitan Pictures, in order to ensure that she would get a sizable share of the profits and have money of her own. Under the MGM deal, the studio fully financed the movies and turned 30% of the profits over to Hearst and Davies, who was also paid a salary of $10,000 a week of which MGM paid 60%, and Hearst paid the rest. Louis B. Mayer of MGM didn't make this deal because he was so enamored of Marion Davies' talent. He made this deal because it bought him publicity that money ordinarily couldn't buy. In exchange for financing and distributing Marion's movies, MGM had unlimited access to Hearst publications for the promotions of its films. This was a huge deal, effectively making sure that MGM movies got more press in more prominent publications than the productions of any other studio. And Hearst still reserved newspaper inches and labor for his own promotion of Marion. He assigned a young Los Angeles Examiner reporter to the Marion Davies beat, which the reporter resented, probably because if you were going to spend your whole life tailing a beautiful actress, it would have been nice if you could have held out hope that you might have a chance with her. When other reporters or reviewers working for Hearst published something less than glowing about Marion, she'd point it out to W.R., who'd make a phone call, informing the editor of the paper in question that the writer had gotten the story wrong, and a correction would be issued, or the story would just disappear from syndication. Hearst's position, his power, and his sheer cash flow could buy a lot of comfort— the largeness with which Marion lived in the 1920s really can't be overstated. In addition to the palatial San Simeon, she had her own 70-room Santa Monica beach house and a massive bungalow on the MGM lot that was itself essentially a mansion. When they were at San Simeon, Hearst and Davies entertained nearly constantly, throwing lavish parties that everyone who was anyone in any prominent field would eventually pass through. Often costumes were involved, sometimes guests would stay for days and weeks. But sometimes it was just friends, acting as though they were just folks. Joan Crawford said that despite the insanely opulent surroundings of San Simeon, gatherings there tended to be casual. As Crawford put it, Marion Davies was always just one of the gals, and Hearst put the catsup bottle on the table. Other reports say Marion was a solo hostess that she'd be presiding over a dinner of dozens while Hearst kept to himself somewhere else in the castle. Of course, Hearst did have a lot on his mind. He was presiding over an empire of nearly 30 newspapers across the country, and he was still trying to control Marion's career at MGM, mostly remotely from San Simeon. 
Marion and all of her directors knew that W.R. wouldn't allow Marion to be filmed kissing anyone on the mouth. Not because he was prudish, he said, but because it was unhealthy and because children in the audience didn't like to see kissing. This wasn't often a problem because Hearst wouldn't let Davies be cast in anything with mature sexuality. The film Xander the Great gave Marion the kind of part that Hearst liked to see her in. She played an innocent orphan. But Hearst still insisted on tinkering endlessly with Francis Marion's script, sending telegrams a dozen pages long from Santa Barbara, dictating major plot changes. At one point, he requested an action scene involving a massive sandstorm. He also insisted on cosmetic changes to sets that wouldn't even photograph in black and white. And the filmmakers couldn't just ignore him because as part of Hearst's contract, dailies were sent to San Simeon every night so that he could watch what was shot that day in his home screening room and give his approval. He'd also supervise the editing of every movie. Even knowing Hearst was like this, prestigious filmmakers wanted to work with Marion. In 1928, after the release of his masterful silent film, The Crowd, the great King Vidor approached Marion about starring in a Hollywood satire he wanted to make, spoofing Gloria Swanson's transition from physical comedian to grand dame. Vidor, like everyone who knew Marion socially in Hollywood, knew she had a gift for impressions, and he also knew that she had a gift for physical comedy that hadn't been fully tapped on screen— and he knew she would be perfect for the part that required her to both mock Swan and take a pie in the face. When Vidar presented the idea to Davies and Hearst, Marion was into it. Then, a couple of days before the film was to begin shooting, the director was called into Mayer's office and found Hearst sitting there. Hearst told Vidar flat out, I'm not going to let Marion be hit in the face with a pie. Marion Davies made the movie which was called Show People, and she didn't take a pie in the face in it. But she did manage to arrange to have Hearst called away to his newspaper office one day so that they could shoot her getting a spray of soda water right in her pretty face. After Show People, Marion, W.R., and 12 of Marion's closest girlfriends went off to Europe for three months. By the time they got back, Sound had taken hold at MGM. They were the last studio to adopt the technology, and by late 1928, they couldn't hold out any longer. That fall, Warner Brothers released The Singing Fool, the second Al Jolson musical after the groundbreaking The Jazz Singer. After returning from Europe, Marion went to see the film in which Jolson sang the tear-jerking song Sunny Boy in blackface. Marion walked out of the theater weeping, not because of the blackface, and not because Jolson's performance had had the intended effect on her as an audience member, but because the triumph of sound over silence scared her to death. Marion secretly stuttered. She was sure her career was over. Davies's movies had always lost more money from MGM than they brought in, but thanks to the publicity opportunities afforded by the relationship with Hearst, it wasn't a deal that the studio was going to end on their end. Certainly, Mayer was happy. He and Hearst developed a bond that went beyond the theater of office politics, with the newspaper mogul known to affectionately pat the movie mogul on the head and call him son. Meanwhile, Thalberg had always taken a creative interest in Marion. 
the time came to test the sound acting abilities of all of MGM's silent stars. And it was a day that Davies was dreading. She nipped Brandy just to get through it. And when it was over, she was sure she'd failed. But Thalberg told her that, in fact, her test was the best of the lot. And he extended her contract that night. Now, knowing what we know, you could hear about this and maybe suspect that Thalberg's effusive praise of Davies' sound acting abilities had nothing to do with her actual sound acting abilities. You might assume that she and Hearst were merely too valuable to MGM for MGM to let them go. But Thalberg immediately rushed Davies into production on her first sound film, called Marianne, which he personally oversaw. Marianne, in which Marion played a French maid, was shot as both a silent and a talkie, but because the talkie worked so well, the silent version was never exhibited. Here's a clip from the film, in which you can hear Davies' surprisingly moderate voice and her really solid French accent. You stay on the out-of-door. When you come on the in-of-door, for me? Hmm, that is not so good. Oh, listen, baby. I'm too nice a guy to treat like that. Can't we be friends? Oui, friends we can be. And so, just like that, Marion Davies survived the transition from silence to sound. Her films were still written and directed by the top talents on the MGM lot, and she got to play opposite emerging leading men like Robert Montgomery and Bing Crosby. Crosby and Davies starred together in the 1933 musical Going Hollywood, a very strange, modern-feeling meta-musical directed by Raoul Walsh, which took advantage of Davies' ability to sing, well, sort of, as well as her by-now trademarked knack for playing dual or duplicitous characters. But Marion Davies was 36 in 1933, six years older than Crosby, and the fact that she was still playing plucky ingenues was becoming fairly ridiculous. The thing is, she couldn't get the really good parts that MGM had to offer because they went to another aging female star, Norma Shearer, Irving Thalberg's wife. As we discussed last week, by 1933, Thalberg had receded from most MGM productions and was concentrating his attention on ensuring his wife's legacy as an actress of prestige. This apparently meant casting her as famous teenagers of literature and history. First, Elizabeth Barrett Browning in The Barretts of Wimpole Street, then Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, and finally, Marie Antoinette. These were all parts that Marion wanted, and which Hearst desperately wanted for Marion. Davies would later call Marie Antoinette the straw that broke the camel's back at MGM. She did extensive research on the controversial Queen of France, reading Stéphane Zweig's biography of Marie Antoinette at Hearst's urging, and she really seemed to believe that she had a chance at winning the part over Shearer, even though she had been told repeatedly by MGM that they didn't see her as a serious actress. It even got to the point where Mayer told Hearst that he could have the rights to Zweig's book, which MGM controlled, if he personally footed the cost of the film. But Hearst couldn't afford that. The Depression had hit him and his newspaper empire hard. Everyone knew this, and it's probable that MGM only told Hearst that Marion could play Marie Antoinette if Hearst paid for it in order to ensure that Marion could not play Marie Antoinette 
for reasons that Thalberg could claim had nothing to do with Norma Shearer. But Hurst felt humiliated by his inability to buy Marion this thing that she desperately wanted. After a quick conference with Harry Warner, Hurst decided that he and Davies were leaving MGM and moving their operation to Warner Brothers. Marion's MGM bungalow was dismantled and moved in pieces on a truck to the Warner Brothers lot, where it was reconstructed. Davies claimed that Mayer weeped watching it go. At Warner Brothers, Davies made four features, and then in 1937, at the age of 40, she announced her retirement. Marion and W.R. settled in at San Simeon. Hearst, now 74, was watching the collapse of his empire. He was financially overextended, and his politics, in particular the harsh criticism of Roosevelt espoused in his papers, were out of step with the times. The Hearst Corporation was reorganized, and Hearst himself was forced to give up his film company. He was so short on cash that he had to start selling off art and antiques, and Marion reached into her own savings and gave her long-term benefactor $5 million. You know, walking around money. World War II helped newspaper revenues a bit, and things were looking up. Until 1941 when Hollywood started buzzing that an upstart writer-director-actor had made a film about William Randolph Hearst. Orson Welles would later say that Citizen Kane is not a biopic about William Randolph Hearst, that he intended Kane to be a composite of a lot of powerful men, including Chicago press baron Robert McCormick, and that Susan Alexander, the blonde singer who Hearst leaves his wife to be with and whose career Hearst invents by using his newspapers to print false reports of her success, was by no means intended to call to mind Marion Davies. But the parallels between the film and Davies and Hearst's lives were hard to ignore. It was in the broad strokes, like Kane's habit of making up the news to further his own agendas, And it was in the little details, like the jigsaw puzzle that represents Susan's passage of time in Kane's castle, and her drinking. Marion did while away hours working on jigsaw puzzles, and she was a drinker. But Wells would point out a key difference between the real woman and the one invented for his film. Kane married Susan. The wife was a puppet and a prisoner, Wells would write. The mistress was never less than a princess. Theirs is truly a love story. Love is not the subject of Citizen Kane. Back in 1941, Hearst knew there wasn't enough in Wells' film to constitute a lawsuit, and he didn't want to draw attention to the movie by trying to sue. So he did the opposite. Hearst banned all of his papers from covering Citizen Kane, and initially, other RKO movies as well. Then Luella Parsons, the gossip columnist employed by the Hearst Corporation, also got into the act. She started calling studios and threatening to release all of the scandalous information she had been holding onto if they didn't all band together and shame RKO into dropping the movie. 
The industry was further intimidated into taking Hearst's side when The Hollywood Reporter released word that Hearst was about to start publishing editorials criticizing the studio for hiring too many immigrants. Fox, Warner Brothers, and MGM each announced that their theater chains would not exhibit the movie. And at the behest of Hearst's old surrogate son, Louis B. Mayer, Lowe's, MGM's parent company, went a step further. Lead executive Nick Skank approached George Schaefer, the president of RKO, and offered him $800,000, the reported budget of the movie, if RKO would destroy the negative and all prints that had been struck. Schaefer refused, without consulting his board, who he thought might be persuadable. Schaefer stuck by Citizen Kane, releasing the film into all the theaters that would take it, and buying ads in every non-Hearst publication he could find. But the campaign against the movie hurt it, and the film, now basically agreed upon to be the greatest Hollywood production of all time, was considered a financial underperformer in its time. Marion Davies said she wasn't personally bothered by Citizen Kane. She had been taught well by Hearst to ignore bad press. She said she never even saw the film, and claimed Hearst hadn't either. And unlike Susan Alexander, Marion Davies stayed with William Randolph Hearst until he died in 1951. Davies lived another 10 years, most of which she spent unhappily married to a guy who she apparently didn't love, but couldn't bear to leave. She had been so epically supported for so long. It must have been tough to contemplate even living alone. Marion Davies's legacy as an actress is probably diminished in part by the fact that most people don't watch a lot of silent films or even early sound films other than the couple dozen enshrined as classics. But certainly, the perception that Davies was as talentless as the squeaky blonde depicted in Kane hasn't helped. What it has done is foster a constant fascination about what Marion and W.R.'s lives were, quote-unquote, really like. Their home, San Simeon, is now Hearst Castle, a tourist attraction, and the land it's on has been designated a state park. Endless debate surrounds their potential involvement in the death of Thomas Ince, a film producer who passed away after becoming ill at a party on Hearst's yacht. And for the past 20 years, it's become all but accepted that Davies and Hearst had a secret love child, born sometime between 1920 and 1923, who lived as Davies's niece. Patricia Lake confessed her parentage to her son on her deathbed in 1993, saying that both Davies and Hearst acknowledged to her that she was really their daughter before they died. This was reported as fact in Lake's obituary, and it became international news. When asked for comment by the LA Times, a Hearst representative responded, It's a very old rumor, and a rumor is all it ever was. Maybe. Maybe Patricia Lake's claim was a dying woman's bid for immortality. Or maybe, if W.R. Hearst's legacy has taught us anything, it's that you can't necessarily believe everything a Hearst representative puts in the paper. ¶¶ 
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is part of the Panoply Network. You can find many more Panoply shows at itunes.com slash panoply. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our intern is Ali Gemmill. This episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And if you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. And please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We had a special guest this week, Larry Harold, who you may remember from our episode in our Star Wars series about Rita Hayworth, reprised his role as Orson Welles. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.